Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Administrative State, U.S. Constitution, and the Supreme Court. Please welcome Paul J. Larkin, the Heritage Foundation's Rumpel Senior Legal Research Fellow. Let me thank you all for coming at the, the very outset of today's event. You have a great many options to select from in how you spend your day. And we here at Heritage and our panelists and myself included appreciate your willingness to spend part of your day here to learn about this important topic. The question of the relationship between the administrative state, the US Constitution, and the Supreme Court is an important one. And that's because the administrative state is now truly a leviathan that our framers could never have anticipated. At one time, very early in the life of the nation, there were more representatives in the House than there were employees in the executive branch. Think about that for a minute. Today, the administrative state is so large that if it were a separate polity, it could effectively elect several members of the House of Representatives and therefore truly become an administrative state on its own. Look at it another way. In 1975, there were roughly 75,000 pages of regulations in the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations. Today, there are more than 150,000 pages. It has more than doubled over the last 40, 45 years. Want a visual representation of that? If you laid those pages end to end, it would go for 30 miles. And if someone were to read those pages as he or she walked, it would take three years unless somebody mercifully committed seppuku somewhere along the way. <laughs> we have here three of the nation's greatest experts on administrative law. They will talk about the law, the administration of that law, and what the courts do in reviewing both. Our first speaker will be Professor Thomas Merrill of the Columbia Law School. He is the Charles Evans Hughes Professor, one of the most cited legal scholars in the United States. He teaches and writes about administrative law, constitutional law, and property law. Most recently, he has just published a book which I have here, and which is on sale outside, and I encourage you to get it, because it is the single best book I've read on one of the major problems that we must address today in the case of administrative and constitutional law, which is how much deference we give to an agency in deciding what the law is. He has also written numerous scholarly articles and several Supreme Court amicus briefs. After graduating from Grinnell College, Professor Merrill was a Rhodes Scholar, where he graduated with first-class honors in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University. 
He later received his law degree from the University of Chicago School of Law, and afterwards he clerked for Judge David Bazelon on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and U.S. Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman. He was also a Deputy Solicitor General in the Office of the Solicitor General at the U.S. Department of Justice, where I had the great pleasure of working with him as a colleague. Our second speaker is Dean Ron Cass. Dean Emeritus of the Boston University School of Law, he is now president of Cass and Associates and a distinguished fellow, excuse me, a distinguished senior fellow, although I don't mean that in age-wise, uh, at the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. He was formerly the vice chairman and commissioner of the U.S. International Trade Commission. He also sits as an arbitrator for commercial, international, and intellectual property rights disputes and is a former United States member of the Panel of Conciliators of the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes. He is a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States and has been appointed to different positions in the executive branch by presidents extending from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. He also is an expert on administrative law and has written numerous articles on it. Our third speaker is a colleague here at Heritage, whom by now you know well. Paul Ray is the director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies here at Heritage. He was formerly administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs within the White House Office of Management and Budget. Before his time at OIRA, Paul served as counselor to the U.S. Secretary of Labor. He began his legal career after graduating from Harvard Law School, where he was on the Law Review, with clerkships for Judge Deborah Ann Livingston of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and Justice Samuel Alito of the United States Supreme Court. He is a member of the Executive Committee of the Federalist Society's Administrative Law Practice Group and also serves on the Board of Innovations and Peacebuilding International, which promotes peaceful, ground-up solutions in war-torn regions. Please join me in welcoming each of our speakers today. Professor Merrill. All right, I'm talking. You, you get to be the leadoff hitter for I'm, today. I'm, I'm mic'd up. Uh, so, um, uh, Paul mentioned the book. Uh, it's over 300 pages long. Uh, I will do my best not to summarize everything in the book <laughs> in a short period of time. Um, I thought instead uh, just to make sure uh, sort of the rough outlines of the history are before us, uh, that I would talk about uh, six uh, phases or stages of the so-called Chevron doctrine. Now, I hope many of you have uh, encountered the Chevron Doctrine somewhere along the way, either studying it or practicing law or something of that nature. Uh, uh, it's usually uh, understood colloquially as, as having established a two-step process um, whereby uh, which courts use in reviewing agency interpretations of their statute. Um, step one being uh, the court taking an independent look at the statute to see whether it has a, an unambiguous or a clear meaning, in which case the courts are supposed to enforce that meaning. 
but step two says that if it doesn't have a clear or unambiguous meaning, then the court should accept the agency's interpretation provided it's reasonable, reasonable in this context meaning permissible. It's something that a reasonable interpreter might conceivably come up with. Uh, now, the first stage of the Chevron Doctrine is the Chevron Opinion that was authored by Justice John Paul Stevens in 1984. Um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, well, the two-step idea is contained in an uh, introductory paragraph of so part two of the opinion. Uh, my book argues, this is a revisionist argument, uh, that in fact um, that uh, was not intended by Justice Stevens to be a new standard of review for federal courts. Uh, and my main piece of evidence in support of that is that uh, Justice Stevens did not use those two steps when he decided the case itself. Instead, he proceeded in a much more conventional fashion, fashion to examine the statutory language, the structure of the statute, the legislative history. It was de rigueur back then to do legislative history. He went through the whole history of the administrative uh, interpretation of stationary sources to see whether or not uh, there had been a sort of consistent or inconsistent agency approach. And finally, he discussed uh, the arguments of the uh, environmental groups uh, in, in opposition to the so-called bubble concept, which said that the, it was that the agency could treat the entire plant, uh, an industrial plant, as a, as a source. Um, so uh, Stevens, I think, proceeded fairly conventionally. He had this sort of snappy two-paragraph introduction. I conjecture in the book that Stevens actually wrote the body of the opinion first, a fairly conventional approach. And then he felt it was necessary, because the opinion was so long, uh, to sort of uh, have some kind of arresting introduction. So he came up with this snappy two-step idea at the beginning of the opinion. But nobody else in the Supreme Court saw any problems with this. There was no correspondence about this. There were no concurrence or dissents. Uh, the actual uh, decision to make this uh, two-step idea a new standard of review was uh, uh, the D.C. Circuit's idea. The D.C. Circuit. Uh, in a decision rendered only three months after Chevron came down, uh, announced that this was a new standard of review that the Supreme Court has recently announced. Uh, the person that made that connection was uh, Judge Patricia Wald, who was uh, on the D.C. Circuit, a Carter appointee and a liberal. So uh, Judge Wald is actually the true author of the Chevron Doctrine, not Justice John Paul Stevens, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, so the first stage of the Chevron Doctrine was, was the Supreme Court regarded this as no big deal. It was never uh, treated as a sort of special opinion. The D.C. Circuit decided it was a big deal, and eventually that idea migrates back to the Supreme Court. The second stage of the Chevron Doctrine I'll call the Scalia stage, um, because Justice Antonin Scalia uh, became a very uh, ardent proponent of the Chevron Doctrine as soon as he was elevated from the D.C. Circuit to the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, Justice Scalia, I think, had some ideas about the Chevron Doctrine, uh, which uh, helped shape its understanding uh, for the remainder of time. Uh, first of all, he got into a fight with Justice Stevens, the author of Chevron, over whether or not the Chevron Doctrine would apply to pure questions of law as opposed to questions of law application. Uh, and this is more or less a standoff. Uh, Scalia uh, was very adamant that it had to apply to pure questions of law. Justice Stevens said, well, no, not really. But uh, Stevens was much more diffident about this than was Scalia, and so for reasons that uh, no one can quite understand, the lower courts decided that Scalia had won this fight and that Chevron applies to pure questions of law as, as well as to questions of uh, the application of law to fact. The other, uh, I think, even more significant contribution of Justice Scalia was that he wrote, uh, he gave a speech at Duke Law School and then published an article in the Duke Law Journal in 1989 in which he said that the real significance of Chevron uh, is that whereas in the past 
uh, the courts have decided whether or not Congress has delegated authority to the agency to interpret, to be the primary interpreter on a case-by-case -case basis that Chevron adopts an across-the-board presumption that any ambiguity in a statute that the agency administers is, uh, constitutes an implicit delegation to the agency to be the interpreter. So this was a kind of a Scalia-type notion. Scalia liked rules. He didn't like, you know, case-by-case -case determinations if he could avoid it. Uh, but this idea of a universal presumption that ambiguity means delegation uh, really is Scalia's idea. I don't think there, there's language you can sort of perhaps interpret to that effect in the beginning of Stevens' opinion, but I don't think that's what Justice Stevens had in mind. The third uh, important uh, notion uh, that comes out of the Duke speech uh, from Justice Scalia uh, is that uh, the Chevron Doctrine is now the exclusive basis uh, for federal courts to review agency action uh, questions of law. That all previous doctrines, the long-standing and consistent interpretation doctrine, the contemporaneous interpretation doctrine, other doctrines like Skidmore, although at this point in time he wasn't attacking Skidmore, but he felt consistently that all of these other doctrines had been displaced by Chevron. Um, uh, interestingly enough, Scalia did not get many opinion writing assignments uh, to use the Chevron doctrine uh, during his time on the court. Uh, he did get one assignment in 1996 in a banking case that no one else cared much about called Smiley versus Citicorp, South Dakota. Uh, and in the course of this opinion, he slipped in a sentence that said, well, of course, uh, delegation under Chevron uh, exists whenever there's an ambiguity in the statute that the agency has to interpret. So this idea that any ambiguity is a delegation, uh, which Scalia's idea then enters into the U.S. reports uh, and is subsequently repeated by other justices. So th this is the sort of Scalia uh, era, I guess I'd say. The third phase of Chevron uh, is what I would call the step zero phase. Uh, and this uh, of course, step zero is something that was uh, more or less announced in the case called United States versus Mead Corporation in 2001. How did this come about? Well, the Supreme Court, uh, in its inimitable fashion, ended up endorsing two, two deference doctrines, the Chevron Doctrine, which was a sort of strong deference doctrine, and the Skidmore Doctrine, which was a very weak deference doctrine, basically I would call it respectful uh, consideration type doctrine. Uh, but the court was not ready to uh, declare victory for Chevron, as Scalia argued, uh, and, and get rid of all these other doctrines. It, it sort of wanted to stick to at least having two doctrines. So the court had to come up with some way of deciding when Chevron applies and when Skidmore applies. And so they basically uh, decided that there had to be a preliminary inquiry uh, before you could apply the Chevron doctrine to ask whether or not the agency had been delegated the authority to act with the force of law and had rendered its interpretation in the exercise of that authority. Uh, and if the answers to those questions were yes, then the Chevron doctrine would apply. If the answers were no, then the Skidmore doctrine would apply. Uh, for whatever reasons, Chief Justice Rehnquist assigned Justice uh, David Souter to uh, author of this opinion in the Meade case. Souter was anxious to try to get as many justices to join as possible uh, because he anticipated a uh, scathing dissent from Justice Scalia, and he succeeded. It was an eight-to-one decision, but in order to get the eight to join, uh, Justice Souter had to adopt a lot of qualifications and, and little sort of exceptions and so forth uh, in order to, particularly to get Justice Breyer uh, to join his opinion. And so the lower courts were utterly, utterly flummoxed by what this uh, force of law thing me meant, what this new step zero uh, constitutes. And so now we had, instead of two-step doctrine, we had a three-step doctrine, zero, one, and two. Um, and I think a lot of the appealing simplicity of the Chevron doctrine was sort of lost uh, with this uh, Mead approach. Scalia's dissent uh, was uh, borderline hysterical. 
uh, and he could see that this was a rejection of uh, many of these ideas uh, that he'd been propounding, uh, usually in con dissenting and concurring opinions uh, during his time up to that point in, on the court. Uh, the fourth stage of Chevron, I will call the city of Arlington stage. So um, uh, time marches on, and in 2013, the Supreme Court finally decided that it had to resolve this issue, which had been unresolved for many years, as to whether Chevron applies uh, to administrative agencies' determination of their own jurisdiction. Uh, and Justice Scalia, very early on in his tenure in the court, had written a separate opinion saying, of course, Chevron applies because Chevron applies to everything that the agency decides. And there's no principal distinction between agency jurisdiction and agency action within its, outside its jurisdiction, within its jurisdiction, and so forth. So this uh, Scalia, I think, assigned this case to himself. He was the senior associate justice by 2013, and he got five votes. Uh, so he wrote uh, a decision in the city of Arlington that resolved the question by saying that, of course, agencies, we, we apply Chevron to agency decisions about the scope of their authority, as well as uh, decisions that are clearly within their authority. Um, he had a second aspect of the decision, which is not noted as frequently, but I think was almost equally important, which was that he significantly cut back on the Mead step zero inquiry uh, by saying that uh, in order to satisfy Mead at step zero, all you need is to find some general delegation to the agency to act uh, with the force of law through rulemaking or adjudication. You don't have to show that the particular controversy in question is governed by such a delegation of authority. Chief Justice Roberts dissented from both of these propositions uh, in a very, uh, I think, uh, uh, strong uh, dissent. Uh, uh, Roberts pointed out that this was uh, uh, that there were serious separation of powers uh, questions here. Uh, that uh, agencies have only the authority that's given them by Congress, and if uh, agencies can interpret ambiguities about what Congress has given them, then essentially uh, we've handed over uh, a very large amount of power to the administrative state. Uh, without Congress's uh, clearly um, uh, endorsing that. Uh, City of Arlington, though, I think, uh, is the high point of the Chevron Doctrine 2013. Uh, stage five. Stage five, rather mysterious. Uh, the uh, conservative uh, judges on the court, justices on the court, and the uh, many conservative uh, commentators suddenly decide that Chevron is a bad idea. Uh, now, exactly what causes this is a little unclear. Uh, obviously, Justice Scalia di dies in early 2016, uh, so the main champion of Chevron is gone. Justice Thomas, even before uh, Scalia's demise, uh, wrote an opinion in which he announced that, uh, well, maybe the Chevron doctrine is unconstitutional, uh, which was quite a remarkable turnabout since he'd been a very ardent proponent of Chevron up to that point in time. Um, I think the Federalist Society types uh, suddenly began to worry about Chevron giving too much power to the administrative state. Uh, in any event, uh, Congress, in the early years of the Trump administration, when the House was controlled by Republicans, twice passed a statute called the Separation of Powers Restoration Act to overturn the Chevron Doctrine. The Senate was too busy to go along. Um, and the Trump administration, uh, in the first two justices that were nominated by President Trump and, and, and confirmed by the Senate, uh, had, among other distinguishing features, that they had both written uh, either opinions or articles highly critical of the Chevron Doctrine. So I think the conservative uh, legal community turns against Chevron. That's stage five. Stage six happened uh, the last day of this term, uh, which is when the Supreme Court decides West Virginia versus EPA. Uh, now, Chevron is not mentioned by either Justice, Chief Justice Roberts in his opinion for the court or Justice Gorsuch in his concurrence. 
it gets a very brief reference in Justice Kagan's dissent. But everybody in the court was perfectly aware what was going on here, which is that the court is carving out a big exception to the Chevron doctrine. Uh, so West Virginia versus EPA, putting aside the details about the issue, which were, had to do with uh, uh, EPA's authority to regulate uh, existing uh, coal-burning power plants, uh, the main thrust of the opinion is that there's now something called the major questions doctrine. So if it, what is a major question? Well, good question what a major question is. Uh, but a number of factors are thrown out as to what's a major question. Is it controversial? Is it something that Congress has been unable to make up its mind about? Large number of people affected, large number of dollars affected, large implications for federalism. Uh, the agency has suddenly changed its mind or it's trying to hide an elephant in a mouse hole. All these things are thrown out as to, as to what a major question is. But if it is a major question, then the court says uh, the agency has no authority to opine about this or regulate in this matter unless there is a clear statement from Congress granting them such authority. So if you think about it, uh, the uh, West Virginia case kind of turns the orthodox understanding of Chevron on its head. The orthodox understanding of Chevron from the Scalia era that I mentioned would be that any ambiguity is a delegation to the agency unless the court can find a clear provision in the statute that precludes that. Now we're told that um, if it's a major question, the agency has no uh, inherent authority uh, unless the court can find a clear statement from Congress authorizing the agency uh, to regulate uh, in that particular matter. So we've kind of come uh, full, full course from where we started out uh, with the Chevron Doctrine. Um, because the court doesn't mention Chevron in West Virginia, it remains very much an open issue as to what the relationship between Chevron and the major questions doctrine is going to be. Uh, the court, I think from uh, the, the conservative reaction period, the court has really stopped applying the Chevron doctrine. The last time it did so was in 2016. I think the court can't make up its mind what to do about Chevron, both the liberals, the conservatives, and the centrists, if you can call them centrists, uh, Roberts at least. Um, uh, can't, don't know what to do about Chevron. Uh, Chevron was applied by the Supreme Court itself, believe it or not, in 107 cases between 1986 and 2016. So it would be a little awkward, I would think, for the court to say, oh, gee, we suddenly discovered that this is fundamentally mistaken. <laughs> uh, so I think the court's in a bit of a jam as to what to do about Chevron now that they've got the major questions exception in place. Uh, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see how the court works that out. I think the lower courts at this point will probably say, well, major question, the agency is not going to be listened to. Minor question, Chevron applies. That would seem to be the most logical thing for a lower court to say, but whether the Supreme Court will uh, clarify that that's what it has in mind remains to be seen. Thanks. Ron, thank you. Well, I, I'm happy to, to follow Tom, uh, who has written what is a, a very thoughtful, interesting, uh, subtle book with a lot of detail in it. And for those of you who have not yet uh, purchased your copy and read it, um, we'll split the fee later on the, the royalty for this. Uh, I, I urge you uh, to do that. Um, I, I do have to start with one uh, small anecdote. I have a, a friend who's a judge in uh, southwestern Virginia in a, a small town there. And one weekend he was out driving. It was a lovely day. And coming toward him, was a, a small red convertible. Uh, a woman was driving it. And as she got toward where the judge was driving his car, she leaned out uh, the window and yelled, pig, pig. 
And my friend was trying to figure out whether he had um, sentenced uh, a relative of hers to jail, whether he had done something in a divorce or other case involving her. And uh, just then he rounded the corner and hit the pig. <laughs> uh, there, there is uh, ambiguity in, in lots of things in life and difficulty in trying to figure out uh, what the directions are. When we talk about government, the Constitution is pretty clear. The big worry it has is how laws get made, who makes them, how they're made, and what they do. If you look at the Constitution, if you look at it as a single sheet of parchment, one of the striking things is the degree to which the space is taken up by what Congress will consist of and how it will make laws. About half of the Constitution is devoted to that. Who makes the law, how they make the law, what the law can be about. A lot of what the argument is about when we talk about Chevron is the space that is given to administrators, people in the executive branch, to actually influence what the law consists of, how it reads, how it's implemented. Chevron, as it was originally rendered, seemed just to parrot what was said in the Administrative Procedure Act and in the act that actually applied in the Chevron case, which was not the Administrative Procedure Act, but the Clean Air Act, which had a review provision very similar to the APA. What, what those statutes seem to say is that courts actually determine what the law is and what it means. And if the law seems to give discretion to an agency, the courts review the exercise of discretion just to make sure that it's reasonable, that it's not an abuse of discretion, that it doesn't go off the rails in one of the, the four listed ways in the statute. Chevron seems to say the same thing on the face of it. And what, uh, what Tom was recounting is the way that some of the DC Circuit justices, uh, judges, and later justices on the Supreme Court tried to interpret that set of provisions and the Chevron decision that seemed to be giving another formula for implementing them what those really consisted of. Over time, some justices and some judges on the DC Circuit had very narrow scope for what sort of discretion was left to the agency because they were very aggressive in their reading of the statute, their construing of the statute, their saying what the statute actually meant. And unless the law was very clear in giving some level of discretion to the agency. The agency didn't get a lot of deference. Um, other judges and justices were very lax in terms of their intervention in reading the statute and saying what it meant, and were more than willing to defer to the agencies. Some statutes don't say anything about the deference that's being given. But the way the statute is written, it seems quite clearly to expect that there will be deference. The uh, Federal Communications Act in provisions that formerly were in the Federal Radio Act of 1927 
gives the commission the authority to allocate broadcast stations as the public interest, convenience, and necessity demands. And to then not only allocate, but to license people to operate them with the same standard. Um, public interest, convenience, and necessity is pretty large and amorphous. It has some antecedents in dealing with common carriers and other uh, sort of businesses, but it obviously is the sort of term that seems to convey an element of discretion. Congress didn't know how to render the judgment very precisely. It gave the commission discretion. The commission exercised it. In 1940, the commission decided that that discretion wasn't only about where the stations were put and what frequencies they had and who was chosen to operate them, but about their relationships with people who were providing them with programming. So the Supreme Court in the national broadcasting case said, okay, you can do that too. And from that point on, there was a back and forth in terms of what the courts would allow agencies to do, how they would exercise it, and what courts would look to to decide the scope of the deference. Chevron provided different terminology for that, and we've been arguing about that for the last 40 odd years. But it didn't fundamentally, on the face of it, change that. Justice Scalia, who is a, a little bit the whipping boy in Tom's book, was very concerned about the scope of discretion given not just to agencies, but to judges. And he wanted to find ways of trying to constrain both. His version of Chevron changed over time. He became more and more uh, willing to read statutes very tightly and to give agencies very precise guidance on what was in the statute and very reluctant to give a lot of room to agencies over time to exercise discretion, except as necessary to do a task that it seemed that Congress had intended, even if only by implication, to give the agencies discretion over. Uh, I think what, uh, what we will see going forward and the major questions doctrine is one that goes back to the, the mid-1990s in a case called the Whitman case, uh, which is where the uh, FDA, having denied for decades that it had the authority to regulate tobacco, which when the FDA was given its charter was not only uh, not regulated by Congress and no one thought would be regulated by Congress, but was actually being subsidized by Congress. Uh, when the FDA, 50 years down the road, says, oh, we had that authority all along, uh, the, the Supreme Court said, that's a big deal. That's the sort of thing that if you were going to see Congress doing it, they would have done explicitly. We're not going to read the law that way. That makes some sense to me, and I think what the, the recent case, the West Virginia case, did makes the same sort of sense. I think we will see that a lot, although we will have to work out over time, just what the scope of that doctrine will be. Uh, in the end, I think there are times when you round the corner and hit the pig. We do have to be aware of ambiguity, and courts have to be clear as to when the ambiguity is to be resolved by the agency. 
Thank you, Dean. Paul, you're at bat. All right. Well, um, first of all, I uh, want to thank you, Paul, for pulling this panel together. And Tom, Ron, thank you for, for coming. Welcome to Heritage. I learned so much from, from the book, as I, as I have from your scholarship over the years. So, uh, so thank you for that. I, I thought your account of, of the rise of the Chevron Doctrine was compelling, and your discussion of, uh, of justifications for it also also very interesting. And you were preaching to the choir a bit when you pointed out some of its defects, and so I, I agree with you there too. Um, what, what I'd like to do is, is drill down a little bit on some of the justifications that are advanced for um, sort of the, the, the core uh, concern driving Chevron. Uh, Tom, the way you, you describe uh, this core concern is that the agency, rather than the reviewing court, is the preferred institution for filling in the space that Congress has left for future interpretation in the statute under which the agency operates. Um, so in other words, that, the, that there are, there's some uh, range of decisions uh, in the, uh, about the meaning of the statute that are, that are best decided by, uh, by the agency rather than, than the courts. And I want to uh, basically put in play a couple of questions around, uh, around that argument. Um, courts over the decades have, have offered two reasons for, uh, for, that pro for the proposition I just recited. The first is that agencies are more politically accountable than courts, and the second is that agencies have greater expertise in their statutory programs than the courts do. And I'd like to put in play questions about both of these reasons. Um, so the, the first thing to note is that it is, it is true that, uh, that agencies are more politically accountable than courts with respect to rulemaking. Um, today, after several decades of growth of presidential power within the executive with respect to uh, agency rulemaking, uh, um, we can say that the president enjoys very strong control uh, over the rulemaking process, at least where non-independent agencies are concerned. Now, he ex exercises that control at the front end and at the back end of the regulatory process, at the front end through the White House policy apparatus. So think of, uh, of uh, entities like the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council, uh, help the president and his political team in the West Wing formulate policy directives that take the form of executive orders and less formal presidential pronouncements that uh, initiate rulemakings uh, at, among the agencies. And the president also exercises control through the OIRA process. Uh, uh, as many of you in this room know, uh, OIRA reviews uh, all uh, of the most important regulations from the non-independent agencies, and they will uh, have the ability to veto a regulation that is not in, com uh, in compliance with the president's policy direction. So the president has a great deal of, uh, of control over the, uh, over the regulatory process uh, at the, at the non-independent agencies. And so what that, what that means is that the regulatory process is indeed politically accountable. Uh, and for the founders, that would have been obviously a, a great desideratum, but only half the question. Uh, for the founders, democratic accountability was necessary, but also raised dangers, uh, namely that uh, you would have majority tyranny, that democratic accountability would lead to the uh, the ability of the, of the democratic majority to form a, a faction to uh, basically enrich itself at the expense of the minority. Uh, and so this possibility of tyranny of the majority was one of the founders' greatest concerns, and they addressed it through the structure they gave to the legislative process. Uh, so as Madison wrote in the famous Federalist 10, uh, Americans pursue a staggeringly diverse array of interests, 
uh, economic, social, geographic, and political. Uh, the requirement that federal legislation pass a majority of the House and Senate uh, means that it must garner a majority of Americans uh, pursuing a, a wide variety of interests. Uh, few measures of public policy can do that, mostly just those that advance the interests that all of us share as Americans. Uh, and so the legislative process is designed to foster uh, those sorts of measures rather than those that benefit some Americans at the expense of others. So we need to ask ourselves, does the administrative apparatus include comparable safeguards to include the democratic accountability does not become tyranny of the majority? And I would submit that the answer to that question is no. Unlike laws, which require the agreement of hundreds of legislators representing a wide variety of interests, uh, regulations can be issued at the will and direction of a single person, the president. He is therefore able to direct the issuance of regulations to help his friends at the, at the expense of his enemies in a way that Congress cannot. So factions too small to obtain legislation from Congress, they just can't get the uh, confluence of, of wills of hundreds of decision makers, uh, can uh, get assistance from the president. They just need to show that their uh, electoral potential that they offer the president exceeds the electoral penalty uh, that, their, that their foes would, would impose. That's a different question than they have to, uh, a different showing than they would need to make to, to Congress. Uh, further, because dozens of agencies report to him, the president can coordinate his administration's regulations as part of a single cohesive whole. They're precisely the sort of complex all-inclusive package that Congress, because it must secure the assent of hundreds of independent lawmakers, has a great deal of difficulty in bringing together. So the president has much greater ability than Congress to assemble a suite of factious measures commanding majority support at the expense of the minority. So if this is true, we see that unlike the legislative process, the regulatory apparatus enables the creation of a majority faction. The Chevron Doctrine facilitates that outcome because it gives the president more leeway to interpret statutes and therefore greater room for maneuver and devising measures to garner majority support at minority expense. Now, all this doesn't call into question the desirability of democratic accountability or dispute that allowing agencies to interpret ambiguous statutes promotes that accountability. My point rather is to show that evaluating Chevron just in terms of accountability leaves us only half the picture. We also need to think very carefully about the way the doctrine enables the creation of majority factions. I'd like very briefly to speak to the second justification advanced for Chevron, which is agency expertise. I don't need to add a lot to what I've already said to do that, because to the extent agency rulemaking becomes subject to the president's electoral and other political projects, the content of rules is unlikely to be directed by agency expertise, but rather by the president's political exigencies. And when that's the case, there's little reason to defer to agency expertise. One might also wonder, by the way, how agency expertise could justify Chevron deference even when that expertise dictates the content of regulations. That is to say, even when expertise rather than presidential political priorities drives the content of regulations. Whatever expertise we may think agencies have in administering their statutory programs, it must presumably be fully articulable. That is to say, it's not like the practical but inarticulate know-how of a swimmer who just knows in her bones but can't explain, perhaps, how to swim, but rather like the fully articulate knowledge of the lawyer or accountant who, given enough time and paper, uh, can give a full explanation of the reasons for her legal conclusions or accounting conclusions.
Because agency expertise is capable of being made fully transparent, as it were, to judges, there's no reason for judges to give agencies more credence than the content of their expertise made fully transparent on review would warrant. Since agencies are fully able to explain their reasons to judges, judges should just evaluate the weight of those reasons, as Skidmore, but not Chevron, directs. And that's another reason for skepticism about the expertise, expertise rationale. So where does that leave us? I think it leaves us here. Presidential power over agency rulemakings calls into question the validity of both rationales advanced for the preference that agencies rather than courts resolve ambiguous statutory provisions in certain situations. Even if those rationales were valid at the time Chevron was decided, they have crumbled as the president has increased his control over rulemakings in the course of the last few decades. Any justification for preferring that agencies rather than courts resolve statutory ambiguities must wrestle with the contemporary realities of presidentially dominated politics. Paul, over to you. Yang, I have some questions I could ask, but before I do, Professor Merrill, do you want to say anything in response to uh, what your uh, co-panelists have had to say? Uh, maybe a little bit. Um, um, uh, I recently got it from uh, a sort of the horse's mouth at the Federalist Society, Stephen Calabresi, that uh, uh, part of the rationale for the push uh, toward a unitary executive theory of uh, Article II of the Constitution was to try to allow the president to rein in the administrative state. The administrative state was seen as being uh, highly uh, politicized and with a leftish sort of orientation and that the president was going to be able to uh, pull, it, pull this in a little bit. I, I agree with uh, uh, Paul Ray that the, the, uh, this didn't work out too well because um, the, the Democrats became equally, if not more, enthusiastic about the unitary executive. Uh, uh, Elena Kagan, when she was a, a professor at Harvard before she became dean and, and ultimately a justice, uh, wrote an article called Presidential Administration, which uh, praised to the skies the uh, idea of a strong president uh, who has uh, basically orchestrates the administrative process in order to achieve a coherent uh, policy program. President Clinton was the one she was thinking of. Um, but uh, what we have seen, uh, I mean, if, if the president is, uh, is supposed to stand athwart administrative agencies, what we've seen is that at least when the Democrats have elected the president, that the, all po the increasingly powerful president just sort of magnifies the influence of the administrative state rather than uh, holding it in check. Um, uh, I, I do think Chevron was, uh, had, uh, was, uh, did not adequately discuss accountability. I think the agencies, at least Many of them are, are accountable to Congress as well as to the president. Uh, they're dependent on Congress for their appropriations. They have, Congress has oversight hearings. Um, uh, Congress has to confirm uh, the leaders of agencies and so forth. Uh, so there is a measure of accountability to both the Congress and to the, uh, the White House uh, that uh, constrains agencies a little bit. This, I, I view this entirely as a question of the second best. The first best, obviously, in terms of accountability, is to have Congress decide these issues, uh, the larger issues of policy. And Congress is, uh, represents all of the country. It represents uh, uh, various uh, factions, not just uh, the faction that happens to be in control of the White House. Um, and Congress is deliberately designed by the framers, as, as uh, Ron Cass has described, to 
uh, you know, sort of uh, not not too too carried away. You know, we have this sort of various you know requirements of bicameralism and so forth, and and uh, other constraints on Congress legislating. So I think the first best solution, obviously, in terms of accountability, is to have Congress decide these. What we're stuck with is trying to figure out what the second best solution is, and then the main choices there are either agencies uh, with some oversight by courts uh, or courts uh, with rather uh, minimal uh, input from agencies. Uh, and uh, you know, it's not a very happy choice, but I guess I would go with the agencies with oversights by courts, particularly keeping the agencies within the um, scope of the jur of the authority conferred to them by Congress. Uh, I think if courts continue to perform that function, then uh, we'll have some incentives for Congress to revisit these issues and tell us um, exactly what they want agencies to do and not to do. Well, let me ask, I have a question, then I'm going to get the question from the audience. My question is uh, actually, ironically, sort of a Washington-centric question, if you will. Uh, you've all talked about the constitutional law, constitutional theory, administrative theory, and the like. Nobody's talked about politics. Uh, and the irony is, at least over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, there have been a, a goodly number of decisions made by agencies that seem to have been directed by the White House rather than by the agency itself. The, the best example I can think of, perhaps, is the uh, CDC home eviction moratorium. Uh, you know, it, doesn't take a uh, you know Inspector Poirot to figure out that the reason the uh, CDC came down with its order, uh, you know, stemming the uh, the tide, which was kind of a small tide anyway, of evictions, uh, was because the White House told it to, and the White House told it to because the Speaker of the House went and told the President that that's what uh, the Democratic Party wanted. So. If there is a good suspicion of this, and whether you want to talk about it in terms of, you know, Terry stop suspicion or whatever, if there's a reasonable suspicion that the real rationale for the decision is politics, can, how does, should a court react? Should a court react the same way uh, Judge Leventhal used to on the D.C. Circuit, where he said you have to have a very strict review of what the agency has done to make sure that the facts justify it and the law justify it? Um, you know, is is that a sort of Chevron minus one, if you will, if politics have infected the decision-making process? Do you increase the skepticism with which you will analyze what the agency has said and done? And this is a like the old GE College Bowl. It's a toss-up for anybody. Well, I, I, I'm happy to take a first swing at it. I, I think the answer is, is you shouldn't ramp up your uh, review standards because you think politics is an issue. Politics is part of the process of having agencies make decisions. Politics is part of what uh, presidential administration does, and ultimately, it's part of what we have in mind when we elect the president. What courts should be doing is saying, have you gone outside the bounds of your statutory authority? Uh, do you have discretion? And if you're exercising discretion, are you exercising it reasonably? Uh, we have a bigger problem, uh, and this goes back to the, the first best, in trying to cabin how much authority is given to agencies. And I, I think we are in a period 
where judges are trying to work out ways of doing that. And when we talked about the major questions doctrine, I think that will be one of the tools that we see increasingly deployed to try to cabin uh, the degree of discretion that is found to inherent agencies, whether we have a well-worked-out doctrine within the next decade uh, remains to be seen. Or polite word for politics is policy. So there is a lot of talk about policy in the cases and, <laughs> and the commentary about the, these issues. Um, um, you know, there were, there were two very interesting question, uh, decisions that were rendered by the Supreme Court um, in the early 80s, uh, right after Ronald Reagan became president. One was the so-called airbags case, uh, in which the um, State Farm, State Farm versus uh, uh, whatever the insurance company was, um, or that, that was State Farm. Anyway, the airbags case, 1983, in which uh, uh, NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, had rescinded a rule requiring either air airbags or passive seat belts. Um, uh, and there was some suggestion that they did this because Ronald Reagan had promised when he was campaigning in Michigan that there would be a rescission of this rule in order to help the auto industry, which was struggling at the time. Uh, and Justice White's opinion for the majority was very technocratic, very much like Harold Leventhal, and said, well, you know, we haven't given adequate reasons for this and so forth. And Rehnquist writes, just, then Justice Rehnquist writes a, uh, a dissent saying, look, it's entirely appropriate for the incumbent president to have certain views about politics or policy and, and have that reflected in the administrative state. The very next year, um, well, that was in this dissent, the very next year, the Chevron case comes down unanimously, and Justice Stevens, of all people, says at the end of the opinion, well, one reason why we want to defer to agencies is because they're accountable to the president, and the president's elected by all the people, and it it's, uh, it's makes sense that there be different perspectives about policy from one administration to the next. So. The court was very much mindful of what you would call politics and what uh, more politely we'd call policy disagreements back in the early 80s, and it continues to later on. I mean, the, uh, the Kagan article celebrates the fact that President Clinton announced the uh, tobacco regulation by FDA before the FDA did anything about it. He had a press conference when he says, we're going to regulate cigarettes, we're going to keep the cigarettes out of the hands of kids, and we're going to save lots of lives, and oh, by the way, the FDA is going to get started on this any day now. So that was presidential administration, you know, uh, telling the agency what to do. Uh, the XL pipeline is a very interesting case, you know. The State Department reviewed the Keystone XL pipeline and said, we don't see any significant environmental impacts here, so let's approve this pipeline. And then President Obama gets the word that, well, you know, maybe this is not very popular with environmentalists. And so eventually, uh, after several uh, postponements, he uh, overrides the State Department and says, you know, you're going to have to disapprove them. I mean, the technical the dis the disapproval technically came from the State Department, but the White House ordered them to disapprove the pipeline. Trump is elected, and what is one of the first things he does is he sort of says, the XL pipeline is just fine, so let's approve it. <laughs> yeah. But that didn't get built before Biden gets elected, and then we disapprove the XL pipeline. So, yes, politics are, are all over the place here, and increasingly it does seem like the White House is emboldened to order agencies to do particular things. I do think that's, um, uh, as, as Paul Ray discussed, I do think that's an, uh, an interesting and perhaps troubling development. Yeah, so well, I'll, Paul. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just add on to that. I don't think that our standards of review should, should differ based on the involvement of politics or policy, but rather we should accept as a given that politics or policy is, is always involved in any important rulemaking, and we should have, we should, we should calibrate standards of review 
from the outset that just reflect that reality. Okay, I'm now going to turn to the audience. Would uh, anyone like to ask a question? Let me just, uh, there'll be someone who brings you a mic. If so, let me just ask you, identify who you are and who you're with, uh, and then say that if you give a speech and then ask if somebody agrees or disagrees, that's not a question, okay? <laughs> so someone over here on the second row, far left. I, I didn't know you had a far left here. Yeah. It's a it, it's a fake. We brought we brought it in just for today. I, I should have sh should have sat elsewhere. Uh, apologies. Uh, Justice Kagan may get some kind of award for best one-liner in West Virginia versus EPA with her uh, quip about a t get out of text free card as her description for the major questions doctrine. And there's been some hemming and hawing in editorials about whether or not the majority opinion was truly principally conservative um, because it was not textualist. Um, she said that they are being results oriented when looking at administrative cases. Do you think this is a fair criticism and one that we ought to take seriously? Or are there other considerations that Justice Kagan is leaving out of frame? Uh, I'll respond to that. Um, uh, and, oh, by the way, I'm going to have a series of blogs on the Volat conspiracy coming out probably next week, which addresses West Virginia in more detail. But I, I think that it's a fair criticism. I think the, in the, the, the antecedents to the Majors Questions doctrine, cases like the tobacco case, cases like MCI versus AT&T back in the 1990s, um, the cases like the utility regulatory group uh, decision by the Supreme Court, these were all cases in which the court engaged in sort of a, a rigorous and close uh, statutory interpretation. And then uh, toward the end or along, in, along the way, and of course of its uh, statutory interpretation, it said, and, and oh, by the way, we'd be rather surprised if Congress really anticipated the agency would do this because it's such a departure from what the agency's done historically or something like that. Um, the, one of the problems with the West Virginia case is that the main discussion, both in the Supreme Court and the D.C. Circuit, uh, we're, we're focused on the, something called the Clean Power Plan that the Obama administration promulgated in 2015. Well, guess what? The Supreme Court stayed that in 2016, and the Trump administration repealed it in 2019. So the Clean Power Plan was not before the court. It was very hard to engage in a textual interpretation of something that's not before you. Now, the other thing that was not before the court is whatever the Biden administration is going to do in the future. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the Biden administration might want to do something like the Clean Power Plan, but they hadn't done anything yet. The only thing that was before the court was the Trump administration's affordable clean energy plan, and they didn't say a word about that. So it had the, I, I think it's a fair criticism to say that this had the quality of an, of an advisory opinion, uh, and that the reason why there's not very much text there is because the thing that they were talking about had disappeared or hadn't appeared yet, and so that makes it a very sort of non-text-based exercise. I think it's unfortunate. I don't think the court, you know, necessarily had to announce the major questions doctrine in this sort of context, but I think that's what happened. I have a go ahead, Ron. Sort of, sort of a, a, a different view on this. When you talk about textualism and textual interpretation, it's always in context. It's always this statement in this context, and the statement means different things in different contexts. You know, my judge and the pig. That that statement. Uh, in, in a different context may have had a very different meaning. When the court is reading the text of the law and saying how much leeway does this give to EPA 
to do what sort of regulation. It's not simply reading the words of the statute without the context of what it was that EPA was given to do, uh, what, how this fits with other things, like with the, the case uh, dealing with the tailoring rule. You have to always look at the text and context. And I think sometimes the criticisms that are leveled at uh, the justices and decisions uh, are, are leveled because someone wants to read the text differently, taken out of the body of the statute and taken out of the context in which it appears. I think we have time for one more question from the audience in the back. Hello, I'm Alec Hill. I'm uh, here on a fellowship. Um, I had a question. Why are some leaders purposely and loyally polarizing to the point of increasing tension instead of finding solutions that benefit the most? I couldn't understand. He's, he's at, the question is, why are we seeing less accommodation, negotiation, compromise, and people playing to the extremes? We're going to get together and give you an answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's very complicated. I mean, uh, I think a lot of political scientists would say that, you know, uh, historically, um, uh, politicians, both in Congress and people running for the presidency, thought that their chance of winning was by winning the median vote or the vote in the center uh, of things. Uh, uh, but, that, but for various reasons, that's changed so that now uh, people think that the most important thing is the turnout of your base. Um, and so that means that both people on the right and people on the left are, have to pay a particularly close attention to uh, energizing the base to show up and vote as opposed to trying to win over the median voter. I, that's one pop explanation for why, we, why we've gotten into this mess that we're in. Another one would be to say that uh, polarization is assisted by the growing power of the administrative apparatus, right? So you don't need to uh, find a, a median solution that can get 60 senators on board, you, you just need to get the president on board, right? And it may be that the president is, is happy to put forward a measure that commands fewer votes than would be, um, or, or, or fewer constituencies than would be necessary to have 60 senators on board. So I think when, when Paul, when you, when you do your program on Baker against Carr, we'll come back and pick this up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we have had a very illuminating discussion by three of the brightest minds in the nation on administrative law. Please join with me in thanking them for coming. Thank you.